You know, it's funny when, when you hear a weather report, I never believe them anyway, just because they seem to be so sensational all the time, you know, and I know their ratings are dependent on that. But today I believed it because what I was looking at was the National Weather Service, and they're not trying to be sensational, you know, they don't sell any airtime. So when they said uh, that the worst band of weather we were going to get was from 7 to 10, I thought, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, just because I didn't want to miss tonight, I didn't want to miss being with you guys, and I'm glad you're here, and I, I count it a privilege to any time I get to speak and be in, be in front of you. Um, I'm curious, before we start out tonight, kind of as an introduction, I'm wondering, uh, what are some of your favorite Bible stories? You can speak out loud. I can't. Say what? Oh, uh, yeah, Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, that, that, that one? Yeah. Yeah, I like that one too. What else? David and Goliath, that is a fun story. And we all learned, I mean, we learned that one early. I mean, kids love that because David's, you know, as a younger guy and defeating the giant. That's an awesome story. What else? Joseph, yeah, his whole life. Yeah, and I, I think we mentioned in here before, I mean, Joseph, there's actually as much written on him as any other patriarch in Scripture. I mean, his life story spans a ton of verses. Oh, look at Aiden carrying that little, little baby. All right, what other stories? What else do you like? Noah and the Ark. Oh, those are awesome stories. Those are good ones. How about Jesus' stories that he told? Now, the ones you've all shared are, are awesome stories, but how about some of his? Yeah, Larry. Oh, that's good. That would have been comical, too. <laughs> I don't know if you all could hear him, but he was saying Jesus wept, you know, that John eleven thirty five. And then he was talking about how, you know, why he wept and that when he called Lazarus, he said, Lazarus, come forth and had to be specific there because it could have been could have been a lot of people coming forth. That would have been cool. Well, let me just let me just kind of segue there. One of the things I love about Scripture is how creative God is in Scripture. It is so rich. You know, and as kids, we grow up. How many grew up in church like Sunday school? How many did not? Let me ask the reverse. Okay, and. You know, when you grow up in Sunday school, you start with those stories and some of the more sensational ones because they're fascinating and they catch kids' attention. And, you know, a few years ago, you know, there was a, a book, I, I never read it, but it is like the bad girls of the Bible. Did you ever see that kind of book? You know, because they're trying to make, you know, an interest in those things. And then there's so many stories, you know, for a young boy that are just like, oh my goodness, those are crazy stories, you know, battle stories and war stories and on and on. But what I love about it is, God constantly in his creative nature teaches us through stories because that's kind of how we're designed. He made us that way. And you know, all, all cultures have a tradition of storytelling. Every culture does. And for some cultures, it's more pronounced than others. And then, you know, as, as most of us as Americans have gotten farther away from our cultural roots, you know, we may lose those stories. And then Disney takes great, great stories and changes them and puts their twist on them and softens them and, and whatever. And, but in Scripture, we read stories. Jesus communicated in stories. And the Bible says that he, as he spoke, he used stories. He, I was reading today, he actually used 41 different parables. I didn't know there were so many of them. And we're going to do a series for the next few weeks on parables. We're not going to do all 41. And uh, some, of a, some of the ones we'll touch on are probably more familiar than others. But some of them, what I was trying to do is pick out some that aren't quite as familiar because um, 
maybe they're not as easily to, easy to understand. And a lot of times what Jesus would do when he would tell a story is he would tell a story on the people in the crowd. He would be telling the story, and as he's telling the story, the different people in the crowd could identify with different characters. Sometimes it stung because he would, he would tell stories that, that really slapped the religious establishment right upside the head. And other times, you know, they, afterward, they even said, uh, in one case, they said, teacher, you realize, we realized you were telling that story on us. I mean, they knew what he was doing. You know, sometimes they picked up stones because they were so infuriated by what he was saying. And then there's other times, kind of like a good, like a good Shakespeare play, it's, there's, there's two levels of the story. There's the story that the commoner would get, and then there's the story that the people, you know, more educated might get. And, and God does the same thing. And in a lot of stories, you know, like, like some of the fables, for instance, that maybe we grew up with or the fairy tales, you know, they, they were moralistic fables that you might say, you know, don't run away from home because you're going to get lost and eaten by a witch. I mean, you want your kids not to do that. But the stories Jesus told were way more than that. Not only did they have a moral involved, but what they did was they were teaching stories about the character of God himself, about God's very own character. And it's something about it when you tell it in a story form, it's almost as if Jesus is sneaking the truth in on them. And he does it to us all the time. And it's easy for us to get lost sometimes in the stories. You know, like for instance, I remember growing up and, you know, we would sing the song, the, the wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that? I had no idea that had to do with, you know, the truth of that story is don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer also. That's, that was never in the song. I just thought it was a story about, you know, people building on rock. But there's more to it than that. But today, what we're going to talk about is how great forgiveness precedes great love. About the fact that, um, well, let me just ask you this. I don't want anybody to raise their hand or nudge anybody or whatever, but does anybody know anybody who has just a crazy sense of entitlement? You know people like that? It's almost like they feel like they deserve the world to be handed to them. And where other people have to pay their dues and work hard, they expect everything. Do you know anybody like that? And as they go through life, and it seems like every little twist and turn, the littlest thing can upset them, and they get so upset and indignant as if the world is owed to them. And it's as if good enough is never good enough, and the best is barely good enough, and they expect everything, even a, a beautiful day, they feel like they deserved it anyway, and it should have happened anyway. And there's people like that. And then when they don't get what they want, they're especially irritated and complaining and Maybe you sit back and you think, my goodness, there's no gratitude here, no gratefulness. And maybe those of us who are parents, I know Nicole and I've had these discussions, what do we do? How do we train our kids to be more grateful? I mean, you want to give your kids better than you had and you want to provide for them, but at the same time, you want them to be grateful for what they have. You don't want them to grow up and be expecting everything or have, have a sense that everything should be handed to them at every turn. So what do you do with that? Let me just say this. Ungrateful people also tend to be very unhappy. Have you noticed that? Because they're never satisfied. And then on the other hand, I've noticed that a critical factor in people who are happy in life, they're also grateful. It seems like they're grateful for anything and they don't expect anything. And because of that, they're happier people. I really believe this, that I believe that we can work on certain character traits and scripture admonishes us to do that to work on some things, but most of us don't do it. We don't put the time into working on our character. We, we kind of, some people have the attitude that this is how I am, just expect, accept me how I am. 
And then sometimes I think we just don't want to put the time into it because first of all, it can be kind of, kind of threatening, you know, because first you have to find out and take an assessment of who you are to really see what part of your character needs to be worked on. And that can be threatening. You know, you might talk to somebody who you really trust and you really love and it can be painful to hear the truth, the honest truth. Plus, it takes time and effort to work. Most of us just kind of want to go with the flow. But I do believe you can work on this. And something I feel like this particular parable Jesus tells is teaching us and admonishing us and encouraging us to work on our gratitude, to develop a deeper sense of gratitude. I've noticed this too, that, oh, wrong way. Kind of our attitude in life exposes a lot about our relationship with Jesus. Our attitude and the way we respond to difficulty and the way we respond to things in our life tells a lot about who we are and what, how closely we are related to Jesus. This particular situation kind of starts off in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, says that one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. Let me stop right there for just a moment. If you're not familiar, in Jesus' day, in the first century Judaism, there were, there were some major Jewish groups. The two largest were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very, very conservative. They, they prided themselves in memorizing huge, huge amounts of Scripture, they would be able to quote everything. They would follow all the rules of, of the Jewish religion to the minutest detail. And when I say that, I mean like this. When they're told to tithe, they would actually tithe on their herb garden. That's how specific these guys would be. But, but it also became a sense of pride for them. So that Jesus used them often for examples when he, when he mocked them for praying on the street corner because they would pray prayers like, Oh, God. They'd pray really fancy in front of the whole crowd for everybody to listen. And they would say things. He mocked them in one case in particular and said he was quoting a Pharisee praying on the corner saying, thank you that I'm more spiritual than this beggar or this sinner right here. That's who invited Jesus to dinner. And you wouldn't normally think that this person would invite Jesus because they knew who Jesus was. At this point, they already knew him and they knew that they were almost in this antagonistic relationship with Jesus because they expected and they, did, they wanted the, all of the commoners and the regular people to look to them as the spiritual authority. And here's this upstart Jesus with, with no education like them, no status, no title, no position in the church, their church. And he was gaining follower after follower and crowds were following him. No crowds followed the Pharisees. It didn't work that way. So a Pharisee asks Jesus to dinner. And we know that some of the Pharisees were followers of Jesus, at least secretly. We know Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, came to Jesus in, in secret. We know that Joseph of Arimathea, you know, he, he got Jesus' body after the crucifixion and laid him in his tomb. We know that there were followers, and then church history tells us a lot of them followed Jesus after publicly. But at this time, it wasn't that way. And as we learn in this story, this particular Pharisee wasn't really a follower of Jesus. We'll see. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar, filled it with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. 
When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of a woman is touching him. She is a sinner. (laughs) Makes me wonder, why did the guy invite Jesus in the first place? My guess is that he really invited him to test him. Because we see a lot of examples in Scripture where, where they would try to pose questions to Jesus to trap him in their rules or their laws or to try to twist him into a situation where he said something that violated Roman law and then they could get the Romans to deal with him. We, we don't know for sure. We don't know if he was trying to gain some type of status off Jesus' popularity. We don't really know. But what we do know is that it wasn't really the traditional warm, welcoming first century Middle Eastern home that Jesus was invited in. Because there's a lot of rules in that society for how a guest should be treated. Like I said, they knew who Jesus was, and then they invited him. And, and as we read this, you know, it's, it's almost as if we're, well, we are. We're, we're, we're rocketing back 2,000 years to a whole different culture than ours today. I mean, none of us would be throwing a, a dinner party with a famous religious figure and, and have a stranger walk in our house, would we? But as I've researched into this, it's interesting because these Pharisees often were very, very, uh, uh, not only were they very outwardly religious, but they were also very wealthy. And one thing they liked to do is they liked to parade their wealth in front of people, almost as a way to brag. Because one thing they really did too is they would tie their wealth with their spiritual blessing as if they were closer to God, you'd be more wealthy. So what that did is they looked at it as if someone was poor, then it had something to do with their lack of relationship to God. Obviously, they're not holy, and, and they're, not, they're more sinful, and I'm closer to God. That's why I'm more wealthy. So they would flaunt their wealth, and in this case, it would have been common for them to have their house open so strangers could come in and gather and then I, I, this blew me away as I was studying and reading about this. I'd never heard this before. But in this time period, it would be common for them, if they had leftovers, they would go ahead and throw it to the, to the onlookers so they could just eat some of the scraps then. Remember that story Jesus told about, about the lady who came? Or not when the story, but the lady came, the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus, and she said, you know, I need you to heal my daughter. And he said, I'm only called to the, the flock of Israel. And she said, well, even the dogs get to eat the scraps off the master's table. That's what she's getting at there. Because that was actually a common scene. It wasn't uncommon for strangers to be allowed to come and look because the Pharisees enjoyed that. Because they were showing off how much, how much food they had. They were showing off their wealth. They were showing off their table settings. They were showing off their decorations. But also what happened is people would stand around and get to listen to the Pharisee talk and interrogate Jesus. So it was more than just someone just getting some scraps, but it was also an opportunity for them to hear. So it wasn't really so uncommon for this woman to be wandering into the house necessarily because women would do that. Now, today it would be different, you know, obviously, if maybe you're out to dinner and maybe this has happened to you where you've been somewhere and you see someone who you know. Anybody have there had that happen? And you say, well, maybe they can put us a table together. You ever had that happen? But think of how awkward it'd be if it's just a, maybe an acquaintance and you're like, and they're like, well, hey, can we join you? I'm like, uh, okay. I mean, just be a little strange. But in this culture, that was more common. Here's the thing that made it odd. What made it odd is the lady who came was a known sinner. She probably wouldn't have felt welcome there had Jesus not been there. 
that's where it became odd. Now, there's times where, you know, we, we have a situation and it's, everybody's like, awkward, right? Have you ever had that happen? Where somebody does or says something or maybe they're dressed inappropriately and they walk in and whatever social setting you can think of, and everybody stops and it's like, everybody stops and looks like, oh my gosh, that did not just happen. Or I'm sure somebody right away would put it on Facebook, yeah, this just happened. Or they might put a picture or try to quick get, you know, something. Because she's described here as a known sinner. And we assume that she may have been a prostitute. We don't know. There isn't a lot of detail given about her life. All we know is that in this highly conservative, very religious culture, she was a known sinner, a known quantity who had led. It's, it's very specific here. It does say led a life of sin. Now, there is a difference there. We, we all sin, right? We all make mistakes, but she was known to have led a life of sin. Something about her lifestyle was that way. There's something more to it, though, because even even the the women in that society as second-class citizens, you know, during this time period, they, they couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. They didn't have the status in society. They... In most cases, they weren't allowed to testify in court. And if they were, their, their testimony as a female was, uh, they had to either be two or three women to equal the testimony of a man. So for her to be there and be that close to the men would have been awkward. The next thing that makes it more awkward is as she comes in, clearly she's broken. Clearly, she's overwhelmed with remorse for whatever her life of sin has been. Clearly, she has heard Jesus' teaching, and whatever he has said has, has led her to be so convicted over her sin that she is, is visibly shaken, visibly weeping to the point that tears are flowing from her face. And she comes up behind Jesus. And back in those days, you're probably familiar with this, that they would lay on, on, on low couches to eat and recline. So it would have been easy for her to come up behind him because he would have been faced toward maybe the host and some other men like this. It would have been only men at the table. So then when she comes up behind him, here's where it gets awkward again. She touches him. In that culture, that would have never happened. Never. Because him, as even though he wasn't a Pharisee, he was recognized as a rabbi, as a Jewish teacher, and as a man, just for her to, to actually, in this culture, just for her to let down her hair in, in the, in the um, presence of a, of a man who wasn't her husband would have been grounds for divorce had she been married. For her to touch another man would have been grounds for divorce. But worse, for the men in this society to be touched by a woman who wasn't your wife, this, this, I know this sounds ridiculous to us today, but would actually make him ceremonially unclean. He would not be allowed to go into the temple until he had taken time for purification because he was touched by this unknown woman. And then to make it worse, she was a known sinner. Do, do you see what's happening here? It's almost worse than her in this culture being a leper because... She, being a woman of sin, is touching him, and then her hair is down. This is a big deal. And we don't, we don't see it that way today because we're just kind of freaked out by, what? She's in this house? She wasn't invited, an uninvited guest in the house? It's more than that. It's way, 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 way more than that. So she touches Jesus and, and makes him un- unclean. So, of course, it's a scandal. It's scandalous. <laughs> but here's the thing. 
the thing that's scandalous to the people there isn't any of those things necessarily. At least that's not what's on their minds. What's on their minds is they're still hung up with the fact that they, they question whether Jesus is a legit prophet. So what they're saying is, obviously, he can't be a prophet if he can't tell she's a sinner. He should know everything about her. They're thinking he should be able to read minds and know everything about who she is, which, of course, I'm sure he did and he knew. But that's to them what the scandal was instead of the other things. What they expected Jesus to do, here's what the scandal was in their mind. Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. In that culture, what he should have done was he should have been he, he, should have, he should have reacted abhorrently to her. He should have recoiled from her. He should have moved away from her and acted as if, what are you doing touching me? He should have embarrassed her publicly. He should have, he should have condemned her verbally in front of everybody and shamed her in that crowd. That's what was expected, public shame. And Jesus didn't do that. And because he didn't do that, that's what they thought was scandalous. Let me, let me say it another way. In that culture, you preserved your, sinful, your sinlessness by avoiding sinners. Don't, don't we do that too, though? Okay, in that culture, you, uh, you kept yourself pure by avoiding the impure. We, your spirituality was measured by your distance from those less spiritual. But don't we do that too, to some degree? I mean, they would measure how spiritual they were by how far away and how few sinners they actually associated with. Now, Simon, the Pharisee's name was Simon. Wasn't he a sinner, though? I mean, really? Now, not in this story, but in others, Jesus would call those guys out, and he would tell them, all you are is whitewashed sepulchers. You paint the outsides white, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, he... He did not play with them. But this was Simon. And he was judging Jesus for not knowing this was a sinner. Of course, this is later, you know, after Jesus and, and in Romans. But we read, everyone has sinned. We have all fallen short of God's glorious standard. And we know that. I mean, every one of us in here, every single one of you know that. I, I don't think any of you are the hypocrite that this Simon was. But I guarantee you, he thought he was better than her by every measure, every single measure. And he knew that if Jesus were to touch him, he wouldn't be unclean. But this woman had touched Jesus and made him unclean. What Simon did automatically was he just compared himself to her. Now, I bet you, I'll bet you if you could get Simon and, and he would be honest with you, if he would trust you enough and let down all his defenses, he would admit to sin. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would. I'm sure he would say, well, sure, I've coveted here and there, but I've, I've, I've sacrificed something for that. I've paid my price for that. But I'm better than her by any measure. I'm sure he thought that. It's great. Jesus does know his thoughts, and he answers his thoughts. Wouldn't that be weird, too? You're talking to Jesus. You're like, oh, I didn't think that. Stop thinking that, right? <laughs> so Jesus answers his thoughts. He says, Simon. He says to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And, and who knows what Simon thought was going to be said, you know. At this point, you know, he, he has no idea. I mean, he, he might have been so arrogant, he's thinking Jesus is going to compliment the food or the house. I don't know. And, Jesus, and he says, go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus tells him a story, which I'm sure he didn't expect a story right here. 
He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. I want to stop right there. Jesus told stories like this all the time where his, he would tell part of the story and everybody expected what the next thing would be. Because if you owed a debt in this society, they had a system for you to repay. And it was brutal. It was debtor prison. You, you could be thrown into debtor prison because you owed this kind of money. And you would work it off. And that money would be paid back or your kids would be working. I mean, whatever it took for you to pay, that was the system. And everybody agreed to it and expected it. So when Jesus starts off on this story and he says, a man loaned two people money, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 to the other, but neither of them could repay him. I'll guarantee you, everybody in that crowd was already doing the mental calculations. Well, the guy with 50, he's probably talking two weeks. The guy with 500, oh my goodness, he's a year in debt or prison. Guarantee. And Jesus says, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Promise you, everybody in the room right then thought, what? No, 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 that's not how it works. But what was Jesus doing? What he was doing was showing them, look, God is not a man and God's economy is not man's. God does not make you work it off in a debtor prison because you never, ever could. Instead, what he does is in his kindness, he cancels the debt. And this is different even than Jewish theology and the way the Jews looked at sin. Because in their system for sin, it had to be paid for, and it was typically paid for with either the blood of an animal or a grain or an oil offering or flour, something like that. It was given, but the sin wasn't canceled. You need to understand the terminology here. The sin was covered. It wasn't canceled. It was covered. So deep in their psyche and in their mind, they still walk around with sin and there's still guilt, but it's covered. But Jesus said, canceled, canceled. And then he follows it up and he says, who do you suppose loved him more after that? And I'm sure Simon had no idea what was coming. But Simon says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus says. He says, you're right. You've answered correctly. And I don't know when it started sinking into Simon. Maybe not until Jesus fully went on with the rest of the story. But I want us to pause for a second and think about it. In this story, Jesus has two people. What's similar about them? They're both debtors. Is their debt different? Sure it is. Is all of our debts different? Is that proper English? We owe different debts, don't we? I mean, if we all went around the room and added up whatever sin we had committed, they would be different. But the fact is, all of us owe. And the fact is, not only do all of us owe, but in in this story, which is the same as us, none of us could pay it. None of us could pay it. What Jesus was teaching him or trying to teach him is, Simon, as perfect and good as you think you are, you're still a 50, 50 silver coin debtor. You're still a debtor. You are as much a debtor as the 500 silver coin woman who you're judging right now. You are both debtors, and you're both debtors, and you both cannot pay. Neither one of you can pay it. You're both broke. You're both spiritually bankrupt. You're both broke. We both owe. 
and we both need our debt canceled. The lender wipes it clean. He could have, you know, the lender could have done a lot of things. And in their society, obviously, you had to work. You know, the debtor prison was the number one choice. But, I mean, the debtor could have given him more time, right? Couldn't, couldn't I pay it back in three days or four days? That's not how he does it. Because that's not what God does. Because there's no way you can pay it back, and you're not expected to because Jesus pays it in full. Uh, I know some people who really struggle with grace, the concept of grace. The, the ones I know, it's either because of things they've done which they just can't imagine ever being forgiven for, or because they were raised in a religious system that didn't really teach true grace. So for them, the idea that it's free is partly offensive, but it's, it's impossible Don't I have to do something? Isn't there something I can do to earn it a little more? Make myself a little more palatable to God. Make myself a little better. Is there something else I can add to it? Jesus says, no, there's no addition. It's canceled, canceled, canceled. And then Jesus pushes it further and he says, he says to them, the perception of how much you're forgiven there's an equal relationship to how much you love. Here's the thing about that. We, we live in a culture today that they don't think they're really wrong. Have you noticed that? Sin has been, sin has been watered down so much. It's almost like we're afraid to use that word because it's offensive. It's not politically correct. I get that. But everybody understands it at some level. Even the most you know, politically correct person you know, I'll bet you we could find a way to violate their sense of justice. I mean, if we worked through enough scenarios, you know, if you, you talked about, if, I mean, you, 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 most of the time people just go right to Hitler, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, Hitler's wrong. Okay, I got that. But ultimately, you're going to violate their sense of justice somewhere. But a problem in our society today is, is if people don't think what they've done or what they're doing is so bad, then they don't see the need for a savior and they won't appreciate his sacrifice. Do you see the difference? And what Jesus was showing him is, here's this Pharisee who's lived his life pretty close to perfect. Nobody's perfect. But he's followed every rule to the detail, to the, to the point where he feels justified in his little sin. Does, does that make sense? He, he, he says the sins that he does commit aren't as serious because look at hers. Hers are super bad. Mine are just these little things, and I do almost everything else perfect, so it's okay. Another thing about Jewish thought is they believed that sin was really only sin if you acted upon it. So you could do things which we would consider sin in your mind, which Jesus you know, he did away with all that in the Sermon on the Mount. What he said, if you lust after a woman, you committed adultery. That was hurtful to the Jewish mind. Because for them, if it was in the mind and not acted on, it wasn't actually sin. So they would play these games with, with how close to sin can I get and not violate it. And what Jesus is trying to teach him here, when you walk that line, then you don't really appreciate the sacrifice paid for your sin. And then you justify and you compare and you quantify and you try to water it down. The thing is, if you, if, you don't, if you don't know how close you are to sure death, then you won't appreciate the sacrifice paid for your life. I thought of a silly story preparing for the sermon, but you know, for many, many years, 
15 years, I would take uh, youth into trips into Mexico. You know, I, was, I grew up right by the border and, you know, five years as a youth pastor in San Diego, then 10 in L.A. Mexico trips were a, a staple of my ministry because it was very inexpensive and you can expose kids to the true third world for, for very little money. I mean, I could take kids for a week to Mexico during the 90s for 50 bucks. You know, we would drive our bus packed full and... Um, we had a bus that had a flat front. You ever driven one of those? Any, have you guys driven those? That's, that's a little different than driving a regular bus because there's something about the feeling of safety when you have a big engine in front of you. But when you're sitting right in the glass, it's really different. I'm just telling you, okay? But driving on those roads down there, oftentimes roads in Mexico are, are really not a whole lot wider than our bus. But here's the thing. Down there, those bus drivers, I don't know what they do to those motors in their, in their buses, but those dudes fly. They could go so fast, and they own the road, and they, they're trying to beat a schedule, and they're getting where they're going. And I cannot tell you how many times I would be on a road, you know, and it's dark, and I'm watching the line, and sometimes the line's there, sometimes it's not, and I'm, I'm trying to see the difference between, you know, the, the, uh, the asphalt and the dirt. You know, I don't want to hit the shoulder, and a lot of times there's not much shoulder anyway, and it goes right off into, you know, God knows what, and rocks and cliff and whatever, there are times, remember one time coming up to a corner, I can see the bu- other bus coming and I'm like, God, please let him see me. And I, I flash my light a few times just so he knows I'm there. I want him to realize this is a big vehicle coming at you. And we're coming up to this corner and I'm watching and, and I can't see him because it's dark. All I can see is he's over the center line. And in my mind, I'm doing the calculation. I don't have enough road. And if I hit the shoulder right here, I'm not sure that the bus is going to stay on the road because I've got a bus full of kids and we've packed it full of supplies and I've got paint and I'm thinking, oh, we're overloaded on drywall or we're overweighted anyway. Oh, God, what do I do? I can't pull over. I can't stop. I'm just praying, Jesus, Jesus. Even now I'm going to get overwhelmed because I'm driving around the corner and I'm thinking, oh, God. I've got 35 kids, and their lives are in my hands, and I don't know if they're all going to heaven for sure. And I'm thinking, this is going to be close, and all this is happening in, you know, milliseconds, and I'm just praying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And this dude clips my mirrors on the side. That's how close we are. You know, he clips off my mirror on the driver's side, and I'm watching that line, and all I'm doing is focusing on the edge of the road. You know, I'm thinking, I've got duels, and as long as my inside's on the asphalt, I think I'm going to be okay. And we pull through that corner, you know, and then, you know, I'm sweating. I'm like, Jesus. And then, you know, one of the kids is like, what was that? Like, nothing. Thinking they have no idea how close they were. I do. I know. I'm so grateful to God as we're driving, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking they have no idea. They have no way to know. They can't measure. There, there's no gratitude, you know, and they're like, when are we going to get there? <laughs> like, like yeah, we're going to get there alive. Just be happy about that. And, you know, that's what I'm thinking under my breath, you know. They can't appreciate it. Do you see the difference? I know the value of our lives at that moment. And I'm the one grateful. And we get there. I remember the next morning, kids are like, what happened to the mirror? Like, oh, nothing. Because they can't appreciate it. And it was pointless to go into the story. They would never understand. 
what I understood. Jesus turns to the woman and he says, Simon, look at this woman. He's he's telling Simon, do you even see this woman? In all of your effort to be righteous and self-righteous and you're all offended that I can't supposedly know that she's a sinner and all of that nonsense, Jesus is trying to say in to Simon, she's a person. She's a person. She's not invisible. She's not part of the tapestry. She's not just some scum that wandered into this room. She's a real person. And I know, you know, Jesus as God is, you know, she mattered to him. She counts. In Simon's mind, she's frozen in her past, and every sin is she's going to wear as a label forever. In Simon's mind, every time he sees her, he's going to think that's that sinful woman who had the nerve to touch Jesus and wipe her hair on his feet. And for Jesus, he was seeing who she was created to be. For Jesus, he was looking at her, and he was seeing every possibility and what, what God had originally created in her. And he saw the potential and what God could do in her life, no matter what had gone on before, what she would become. That's what Jesus saw. He saw someone who he created in the image of God that she couldn't even fathom. We, we see people in their brokenness and see ourselves in our good intentions, don't we? We, anyway, <laughs> then Jesus says, my batteries, well, how, much, how much do I have there? Then he turned to the woman and he said, Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't even offer me water to wash the dust from my feet. That was common, common courtesy, not even special courtesy, common. But she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. Again, it was a common, common thing. It was no doubt a very disrespectful message that Simon was sending to Jesus by not doing those things for him when he entered the house. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. He sticks it right to him and just tells him the truth. You don't even get it. He says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many. Notice, Jesus doesn't condone her sin. He's never light on sin. As much as, as, much as, we, as, much as he, he spoke directly to sin, the sinners were not put off by that because they knew that it was also with love. He loved them. He wasn't offend, they weren't offended at his calling their sin sin. He knew it was sin. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Basically what he's saying is this, was, this woman is a worshiper and Simon wasn't. She repented, but Simon didn't. She served and Simon wouldn't. She freely gave and Simon didn't give. He gave the minimum. He says, great love has followed great sin and this woman experienced great forgiveness. And all along, Simon saw himself as better than her and different than her and having more potential, but that wasn't true. The sad thing is, Simon couldn't even see the man in the mirror. He was blind to his own sin and his own 
situation. He was just as broken, just as desperately in need of a savior. And Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He just says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. He gives her a clean slate. No more sin. She's in a place of great surrender. I want, to know, I want you to notice something here. At this moment, do you, do you realize Jesus could have required anything, right? He could have told her, now give 10% for the rest of your life. Do you think she would have? Yes. He could have told her, and put, put on these clothes and, and cut your hair. I mean, he could have put a lot of things on her. He did not. Because he doesn't add any of those things. We do. He adds nothing. Her, she's forgiven. Go in peace. And what, he, what, of course, he means is for her to live for him and walk with him, you know, from then on. I want us to think about this for a minute. And as we close tonight, I just want you to shut your eyes and just think about this. I'm just going to give you some rhetorical questions to think through. This, I, I heard this one in relation to this parable, and it, it, it's rough to hear, but think about this. She left that house, and for the first time, a man made her feel clean instead of dirty. She left knowing that no matter what people thought of her, she was truly forgiven. She was at peace with God in a way that all those self-righteous people around the table couldn't understand. She was set free. She wasn't who she used to be. Everything was different. The price was paid in full because she'd been in the presence of Jesus. Grace isn't something we earn. It's not something we work for. It's not something we get closer to God to, to get better at. We're all spiritually bankrupt. I want us to do this for just a moment as we close in prayer. David, if you could put some music on for us. and I just want you to sit for a minute and to consider <laughs> how grateful are you for what God has done? It might mean that for the next few minutes you just... Think through and not, not recounting your sins. I don't even mean that. What I mean is just thank him with gratitude for how much he's forgiven you. I never want to be one that compares myself to others like that, and I never want to be one that takes his forgiveness lightly. I am grateful that he has, has chosen to forgive me and to place me as one of his grateful for that. Let's just spend a few moments. You just spend time with him, and whenever you're done with that, of course, you're dismissed, but just spend time in gratitude toward him.